about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know, that the whole earth, sorry, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patient. And our second reading is from Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write, these, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we are finishing our series this evening. Last five weeks we've been thinking about what it means to work in the name of the Lord. In this present time where we are caught between his two appearances, he appeared once to show grace and he will appear again in glory, we've been thinking about how we work as to the Lord in whatever we have been given. The mundane things of work we can offer to Him in worship, and that grace can drive us and instruct us as we work to make good work for our city and for others. This week, as we finish, I just want to have uh, one more glance at that last pole, at the coming glory of Jesus, at the future that God is bringing into the world. And I want to ask the question well, how does that instruct and inspire our work? Now, our culture already has a vision for how our present work relates to the future that's worth keeping in mind as we think about this as a problem. Basically, what our culture has come to think is that we collectively, as we work well, are together building towards some sort of utopian city or society. This isn't something we articulate explicitly to each other all the time. It's kind of a street-level slang view of society and the world. Mark Sayers talks about it really well. He's a pastor in Melbourne. This could be described as a kind of street-level myth of secularism. 
founded on the belief that as we progress in time, we will also advance scientifically, technologically, politically, and morally. That we're on this journey together and all our work is this cumulative venture, growing and building, and we will just get better and better and better with time. This model presumes that with the right conditions and influences, humans are perfectible and that a kind of human utopia is possible. Right, so this isn't explicitly said anywhere, but we have this collective feel that we are headed somewhere as a Western kind of liberal nation, as a society. And it's really interesting that this is kind of in the background and in our imagination as we work. What's most fascinating about it is it's a kind of hangover from Christianity. Christianity is a very forward-focused faith of God promising things things and then being fulfilled. Revelation 21, we see there is a city, a heavenly city, a final city that is to come. And so this is kind of a reflection of that reality, but with the God part kind of shorn off and left behind. So we swim in this culture where there is a question of, well, our our work matters because we're contributing to this great cultural good that we will get to in the future. Now, we have all kinds of questions about that now, particularly about the perfectibility of humans and whether we can actually get our acts together and get anywhere together at all. But it is still the thing in our minds. So what I want to ask today is, well, how does the appearing of Jesus in his glory, how does that change our understanding of our relationship to the future and our work to what he will do in the future in particular? Four things from these two passages today. The first thing is this. Our great hope, friends, our great hope, as those who trust in Jesus, is for Jesus to appear. That's where our longings and our desires and our hopes are to be focused on. Not upon what our work will become, but what he will bring when he comes, when he appears. Let me take you back to Titus 2. I've been walking through this through the last five weeks. Paul says to Titus, In this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in a time of waiting. Christian faith is defined by waiting. Not just for something to happen in society, but for Jesus. We're waiting for Him. The waiting there is not a passive sitting back on a lounge sort of waiting. It's the edge of your seat anticipation. I cannot wait for Christmas kind of waiting. The kind of desperate to see it arrive. That's how Christian life is lived, on your leaning forward, waiting for Him, for His glory, for what He is like, for the greatness of His power and majesty and love and holiness and goodness, for Him to appear, our Savior. Titus says later, of what God will bring, what Christ will bring when He comes, he talks about us being justified by His grace, that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Jesus will come in his glory. We are to long for him in particular, but with him comes life. Where he is, is life. And when we are with him, we have our eternal life. This is the great hope. And I feel this hope does kind of crash against our culture a little bit, in a really helpful way. This kind of utopian secularism kind of moving forward in time is very horizontal. 
It's very focused on humans and human society and on what's happening right in front of us. It has very purposefully shorn off what is above, what is vertical. God, the eternal things, not just the here and now. And we have to let the hope of Jesus coming crash against it a bit. You know, in some parts of our city, if I was giving this sermon, I'd say, I think sometimes we make too little of our work, and God wants us to make more of it. I think I want to say in this part of our city the opposite. That maybe, maybe for us, the temptation is to make too much of our work and to forget of the eternal things that are, that are going to happen. To forget of Jesus coming. That he will come again in glory. That he will fulfill the salvation he has wrought on the cross. There, there is eternal life. And there is eternal death. And they will play out forever. And we are not to become so engrossed in now that we forget what our hope actually is. It is Him. And it is the life He brings. And the reality of that teaches us that the future, the future will not be the product of our work, but God's. Not our work, not what we make, but what He will make. That's where we get this amazing passage from Revelation 21, right at the very end of the Bible. Revelation is written to Christians under the Roman Empire, where Rome is brutal and violent and domineering and just seemingly invincible and just inevitable in every way. And Christians are facing persecution as a a religious minority. As part of that, they're being killed. And the sense to them is that there is no hope of Rome ending. There's no hope of this being overturned. And, and the whole book talks about what Rome is and what will happen and how it will happen and why it's happening. But at the end, there is this wonderful note of hope that's supposed to remind them that there is a greater thing coming. There is a work of God that will come and overthrow even Rome. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The Christian hope is not that we go up to heaven, but that heaven comes down to us. See the picture? The picture is of a new physical earth and a new heaven, a new creation, a new here and a new now. And that we don't go up to it, but it comes down to us. Coming down out of heaven from God is this holy, new human city. The hope here is in what something that God will do, not that something that we will bring about. It does not come up from earth, it comes down from heaven. And what we see here is actually a radical rupture. This is not just continuous with what is happening on earth. As a part of it, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
You see, this is not just the utopian city at the end of time that humans build. This is the city of such radical difference where the very threads of pain are are pulled out, where the sad things have come untrue, where death is gone, where there's no more reason to mourn, where the systemic and endemic practices of injustice and unfairness and inequality are gone, where all the difficulties of life are sucked out of the atmosphere. This is not something humans can make. But this is something God will bring. This is the future that He will make. And you see, this was a radical hope for these Christians. Because for them, they thought that Rome was the eternal city. That Rome would conquer all. But God says here that He would radically rupture things. That He would radically overthrow Rome. And He would create His own eternal city. And what this was supposed to do to those early Christians was to kind of free them from despair. Free them from that inevitable sense that evil would just exist forever, that the brutal violence of Rome would win the day. It was to help them realize that there was something that would come and give them an ability to stand up and say no to Caesar, to protest against it. To refuse to bow the knee. To refuse to conform and instead be different. Because something different was coming. It gave a radical energy to endure. But also to not resign themselves to the inevitability of things. This is where this really helps us in our work, I think. We do not need to believe that the unjust and unfair systems we are part of are inevitable. That they cannot be broken in some way. We don't need to resign to the evils of our world. Instead, we have space to breathe and remember our agency and to hope in something coming. And so believe that now is not all there is. The future does not belong to our work. It belongs to His work. But we are a part of the future. And we groan in the present. We are a part of God's future, living in the here and now. And that matters immensely. This is where I'm going to take you on a brief and very unsatisfying look at a wonderful passage in Romans 8. Just so you know your disappointment in advance. We don't have time to go to the depths of it. But this part of Romans 8 speaks of what the, the experience of knowing what is coming and yet living in the midst of the world. And it uses this wonderful language of groaning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. As in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. The experience of belief is to Know that this beautiful thing is coming, but have to live in the mess now. To know that you're a beloved son and daughter of God, but to have to live in the mess of the life that you have for yourself now. And it's being given to you. 
And that wonderful word used there of groaning. Paul says creation is groaning. Creation has this sense of what is about to come and it's like it's in the pain of childbirth. Waiting for God's future to come and so are we. It's like knowing what's to come and having to live in the middle of things. It gives us this wonderful dissonance. It throws into relief the darkness of now. It almost can drive up our frustration and difficulty with what we have to experience. And the reason for that is that we are a slice of God's future now. Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits were the first bit of grain that came up in the crop before the whole crop came. The first bit that showed what else would come. And Paul says we've received the Holy Spirit in such a way that we've received the beginning of God's future now. Paul in Titus says it this way, He saved us through the washing of rebirth. That word rebirth is used one other time by Jesus in the Gospels to describe how God will remake the whole universe, the whole new creation, like Revelation 21. And Paul says, that has happened to you already. That what will happen to the whole universe has begun in your heart. That you, friend, as you trust Jesus, are a part of the future. That while your work may not be the future, you are. And therefore, wherever you are, acting out of love and worship to God and out of love for the humanity around you, there are slices and tastes of God's future. They're not part of the future, but because you are a part of it, they are. The best way I've heard to describe this is that our work at best is what you'd call a parable. This book is not worth reading. It's impossible to understand But this line's great. The church is to go out into the world to enact parables of God's kingdom, loving the world with an extraordinary outpouring of its own life as Christ poured out his life for the church. Jesus told parables. He told stories about trees and seeds and nets and fish as ways of describing what the kingdom of God was like. The kingdom of God was not fish and nets and stuff, but it's how he described it. Now, I think our work is similar. Our work can tell parables. You know, uh, banking might not perfectly tell us about the world that Jesus will bring about, but maybe it could in some way taste the fairness of it or the beauty of it. Maybe the way we help restore people in difficult relationships through counseling or help mend people's bones. You know, those bones are going to break again and decay, but maybe there's a taste of the renewing of all things as we do it. We as God's future acting in the here and now. Here's an example from architecture I wanted to show you. You know, um, the Christians in Rome weren't a persecuted minority for a, a, forever. They eventually were the main, main thing in the empire. And when that happened, some of the architects who were Christian in Rome started having a different vision for how Rome could be architecturally and the urban planning of Rome. And they got a sense that the heavenly city that's coming, they weren't building it, but they could reflect it in the structures they made. So here are the roads leading to the people's place, the people's plaza, in one part of Rome. Now, there are three kind of main roads heading there. 
And the idea behind this piece of urban planning was actually to reflect Father, Son, and Spirit. The God who made the universe was the one who would bring the people together. And they, lo- they love this so much that they actually put, see how there's kind of two light bulbs in between the lines? They're, they're churches. The way that he brings us together is through the church. This is a, a public piece of planning that reflects God's glory, like the, the heavenly city will. Or take uh, St. Paul's Basilica in the middle there. When Michelangelo made the basilica, he thought of it as the divine head. And so Barini, when he was making some of the structures around it, decided to make some arms for the head. So that as you walk into the basilica, you have these arms around you, that you come to meet the face of Christ, but he welcomes you and envelops you as you walk in. Reflecting in architecture, the wonder of entering his city one day, of being welcomed in by him, publicly, beautifully, in stone. Or how about this one? What do you think this is? A church, someone suggested in college, a library. This is the hospital of the Holy Spirit in Rome. Can you imagine making something this beautiful for a hospital these days? You know, in the 8th century when you went to hospital, you probably weren't going to leave again. And this was shaped in a certain way with an octagonal structure. The octagonal shape was to talk about eternal life. And people would lie on their backs looking up at it with the cross in front of them, being reminded that they may not be healed now, but they will be healed then. And in the way this building was structured, they could taste the future through the wonder of the gospel. This is a simple way. Architecture can reflect in what is made now, the glory of what is going to come. And all of work can do this in, in small ways, as parables. Not making the future, but maybe communicating it in slight ways through the power of God's Holy Spirit. But finally, and this is really important, and perhaps this is the thing we need to hear most today, is that the hope of the coming of Jesus' glory, in the end, it helps us endure and just wait patiently. You know, in the end, as, as the New Testament describes hope, it's this wonderful balance of passivity and activity. On the one hand, we can't make the future. We have to wait for it. It's God's work. That's why we're groaning in the present, eagerly anticipating what is to come. We are to passively wait. This hits against our active culture where we feel we have to fix the world. We can't fix the world. We have to wait. And yet this, all, this hope also energizes us. This waiting isn't just passive. It's active. It's full of longing and desire. It can't help it and, and not overlook the pain that is around us. Paul says, you know, for in this hope we were saved, this hope of what Jesus will bring about. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We have a real hope of something that is coming. It is certain the death and resurrection of Jesus have secured it. It is only a matter of time. And friend, the disappointments of work tomorrow that will inevitably come as you seek to crank the reel of, of a system that will not change with systemic problems that are too big for you to handle. And you will sigh deeply. And I want you to remember then 
that this is the Lord teaching you to hope in something else. Teaching you to wait, not for this city just to get better, but for the Lord to appear. Work can be the great school of our hope. Training us in our disappointments to not put our stock in now, but to long for Him. And to let our longing for Him free the the space underneath us. I love how one person says the word patiently as translated right here. It's not passive. It's a strenuous holding on to hope. And doing good despite suffering and difficulties. I love that. It's, waiting is strenuous. It's difficult. It requires some steadiness in you. It requires a continued collabor- uh, calibration to what is coming in the midst of our disappointments. So when you feel disappointed tomorrow in yourself, in your work, in your company, in your industry, in your society, stop. And pray, Father, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. May your will be done in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. And let the Holy Spirit calibrate your hope, not to now, but to then. You know, the reason why you can be certain and sure of your hope, of where you will end up, that there's a place for you in the city to come. Do you know how you know for sure? The city to come belongs to Jesus, just like Jerusalem of old did. But do you know what? He got kicked out of his city. He got strung up on a cross, literally outside of it, so that you could be welcomed in. He has borne all your failure and sin. And instead offers you a place by his death and his resurrection. That you might wake up in his city. So may the hope of that, of your future, kindle in you a longing for him. That steadies you and inspires you now. Your work may fail, but his will not. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.